Welcome. We're going to continue our study of the book of Ezekiel and just covering chapter 1, verse 28 through to chapter 2, verse 2. And I've called this the call to ministry, counting the cost. So basically, the book of Ezekiel is not just a prophetic book. It's a book that gives us a lot of insight into the life and times of this man called Ezekiel. And we think of him as a prophet, and yes, he is. But he's also, guess what? He's just like us. And he's gone through some struggles that we can relate to. So today, I'm going to continue to build the picture of who Ezekiel is and what he's going through and the start of God calling him to be a prophet. So let's pray, then we'll do the memory verse. Father, give us wisdom as we study this. Lord, reveal Ezekiel's relationship with you. In this book, his heart's laid out for all to see. And we can see his pain, his struggles, how difficult he found life. And Lord, we can really relate to this and we can be encouraged to do great things for you, even though we also, just like Ezekiel and just like Elijah, are weak. We are weak too. But Lord, in your strength, we can do amazing things. So help us to glean from the book of Ezekiel what he did and how he managed to put his trust in you and to do great things for you. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the memory verse is Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. It says, you ready? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, just to explain it, the heart of stone is the hard heart. The heart of flesh is a soft heart. The heart of stone does not want to obey God. The heart of flesh is soft and will obey God. It wants to obey God. And verse 27 is important. It says, I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. So this is very clear. God will cause us to walk in his statutes. He says, and you will keep my judgments and do them. It's a promise. So it's not that if you try hard, you can do it. No, it's God going to cause us to do it because his spirit is within us. And you will keep my judgments and do it. It's a promise. Not you're going to try to keep my judgments. He says, you will. That's our growth. That's how God's going to change us. He's going to cause us to want to walk in his statutes and want to do his judgments. So that's the memory verses for the book of Ezekiel. So hopefully by the end you've had that down. So God calls Ezekiel to be a prophet. And last week we saw how God revealed himself to Ezekiel. The vision of the cherubim, those four amazing angels, the wheels next to them, the platform, the throne, and then above all that, the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So why did God do this? Well, consider Ezekiel and his circumstances at that time. I reckon he was most likely dejected, discouraged, disillusioned, disheartened, and despondent. Why? Do you remember what happened to Ezekiel from last week? Well, he had been taken captive or prisoner from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in the second wave of deportations. But Ezekiel was a godly man. If they were all like Ezekiel, then these deportations wouldn't have happened because God wouldn't have had to judge the nation, you see. But Ezekiel was suffering because of the results of other people's sin, you see. So basically, the southern kingdom of Judah was being attacked and conquered by Babylon because of their continued rebellion against God. And we're going to come back to this idea of, you know, why bad things happen to good people later. That's going to be one of our applications. But as a result of this happening, he was most likely confused, 
wondering about his future, saddened that he may never be a priest after already having completed five years of training, and probably wondering where God was in all the difficult circumstances he was facing. So as a priest, at age 20, he would start his training, his priest training, and at age 30, he would start his work as a priest in the temple. So basically, it's a 10-year apprenticeship, and he's done five years already. So in that five years, what do you think he's been doing as a training for a priest? Studying the Word. So why do you think God could call him to be a prophet? Because he's a good student of the Scriptures, you see. Now, what Ezekiel didn't know at this point was that life was going to get harder. In fact, much harder. God was preparing to do a mighty work both in and through Ezekiel. And this is the same for us. We shouldn't expect life to get easier. We should expect life to get harder because God is preparing to do a mighty work both in and through us too. Ezekiel would be given a very difficult message to deliver to a very rebellious and hard-hearted people who would not appreciate him at all. He'd be hated, ridiculed, jeered at, and even physically restrained. His message would go against the tide of the ever-popular false prophets and also against what would appear the national interest of his own people. His own people would turn out to be his enemies. And what happens with Ezekiel is that God uses Ezekiel in a very unique way. He gives Ezekiel action sermons. His messages are like not just words, but the things he does. And in one of those messages, God takes away his wife and he's not allowed to mourn over her. And basically, it's just a really hard road for Ezekiel to follow. But he does it. The application for us here, overall, doesn't this sound like what the New Testament says that Christians should expect to face? What did Jesus say in John chapter 15, 18 and 21? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So don't be surprised when they persecute you because if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So God is preparing Ezekiel for, as we're going to see probably next week, for this opposition that he's going to face with this message. I think that Ezekiel's life was probably one of the hardest of the prophets in the Old Testament. They all had a hard life, but Ezekiel was really difficult. So living in captivity in wicked Babylon, rejected by his countrymen, giving a, giving a tough and unpopular message. His action sermons often requiring a lot of physical sacrifice and discomfort. And the loss of his wife all resulted in a really difficult and what is probably the most hardest part of his life was he was very lonely. From what I've read lives a lonely life, especially since his wife died. He doesn't seem to have any friends. And if he wasn't relying on the Lord, it would be a really difficult, if not impossible, calling. So what would give Ezekiel the strength, desire, or willingness to obey God in such difficult circumstances? Well, only the right perspective. If we understand who God is, then we won't fear anything or anyone else. We will lose our fear of man and so we can be a genuine God-pleaser and be able to obey Him in all situations. Another confidence that God gave Ezekiel with his vision is that Ezekiel knows who holds the future. Ezekiel knows who's in control. And so it doesn't matter how bad or serious our circumstances may be or how discouraged we may feel or how deep the hurt cuts our heart is. Our future is always secure. Why? Because we're safe in God's hands, in the hands of the Father, in the hands of the Son, as it says in John 10, 28 and 29. So the ultimate security for the believer is not financial. <laughs> it's not anything temporary. The ultimate security for the believer is that when this life is over, we have a glorious home in heaven waiting for us. We are citizens of heaven. And we are adopted into God's eternal family. And I've got verses in the notes you can look up. So again, just to emphasize this, why did God reveal himself to Ezekiel with such a glorious and majestic vision? Well, Ezekiel needed the right perspective. 
He needed to know who God was, that God was in control, and that God loved his people. And that's represented by the rainbow around the throne, God showing mercy. So, when we see God, when we get this vision of God, when we get this understanding of God, then everything else around us starts to fade away. Everything else around us becomes little, becomes meaningless, becomes boring. It becomes something we don't want to do anymore. And so the things of this world just seem to fade away. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, 7 to 11. I once thought these things, and referring to his religious achievements and his reputation, other things, were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So, this is the same attitude that Ezekiel had. He's cast everything else aside and he's just seeking a relationship with God and being obedient to God. And that's what God wants for us too. He wants us to think of everything else as being rubbish, this worldly stuff, and just focus our lives on him and serving him. And we will find our satisfaction there. Now, as we read these verses, remember the vision where you had the four angels and the wheels and the platform and then the throne on top of the platform and then Jesus on top, the glory of the Lord right above all these things. The voice that's speaking is coming from on top of the throne. It's God's voice. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 to chapter 2, verse 4. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And that's the summary of that vision in chapter 1. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. So we're going to find out what he says next week. But for now, we're going to cover some important and interesting aspects of Ezekiel's personal life, and we can relate this to the difficult circumstances that we go through personally as well. And also, Ezekiel's called to ministry. Did you realize that you also are called to ministry? Everybody is called to ministry. God calls us all to serve him in their own unique way. And so, Ezekiel's being called to ministry here. God's calling you as well. So, this is directly applicable to us. So, verse 28, it says, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. So, when did God start talking to Ezekiel? Only once Ezekiel had humbled himself when he had fallen on his face, when he had submitted himself to the Lord. Why? We only have an accurate view of ourselves once we have a right understanding of who God is. If we are in awe of God, then we won't be in awe of ourselves. So this is true perspective, a perspective based on the reality of who God is and who we are, and not the lies and prideful deception of our sinful nature. Because, you know, our sinful nature, we always tend to think of ourselves as being better than we really are. 
self-sufficient and independent and all those things, but that's not true. Truth is we're completely dependent on the Lord. So this is why true perspective, having a right understanding of who God is, results in genuine humility. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to see yourself in the light of who God is. So the more we really see or experience and know God, then the bigger God becomes and the smaller we become in comparison. Now, do you remember what John the Baptist said? Talking about Jesus, he said, He must become greater and I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. That's the attitude we should have when we see who the Lord is. So a proud person may know lots of facts about God, but they don't understand who God is. And the Pharisees are a spectacular, unfortunately, spectacular example of this. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus condemns them for knowing lots of stuff and doing all the little bits of the law, but neglecting the weightier matters of the law. They don't understand God's attributes, his holiness, his power, his majesty, his glory, his splendor, might, love, humility, and kindness. They're ignorant of all those things. And then in verse 28, it says, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. So here we come to why do we need the word of God? Why study the word of God? I mean, he's already seen the vision. He knows that God is big. He knows that God is awesome. Wouldn't that be enough? Why does he need to have the words of God? Well, there's reasons why we need the word of God. And that is so we can know what is true and false, what is right and wrong. We can know what God's will is. And we can understand explicitly and exactly what God is like, his nature, essence, and character. Because when you have a vision, when you have an experience, when you see something, you can interpret that based on your own feelings, your own limited knowledge, your own beliefs, your own attitudes, and your own previous experiences, and you can come to the wrong conclusion. So we need the Word of God to bring us to the right conclusion. Now, signs and wonders, do we need them? Do we need visions and things like that? What's the purpose? Well, Mark sixteen twenty, and the disciples went everywhere and preached, and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. So signs and wonders and even these visions or dreams are never a replacement for the Word of God. I still need the Word of God. So now we move into a personal application. How do we gain a godly perspective? How do we begin to experience the glory of God? Do we all need to have one of these amazing visions? <laughs> well, the answer is no. It's all got to do with the Word of God. So how do we grow an understanding of who God is? We dig into the Word of God. We make ourselves available for Him to speak to us. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. As we take the time to seek God through prayerfully meditating on the Scriptures, the Spirit speaks to us and reveals Himself to us. And in the process, He transforms us from glory to glory. And you can see 2 Corinthians 3.18. So who is it that God reveals himself to? It's those who actually take the time to seek him with their whole heart. Those who are willing to respond to the conviction or drawing the Holy Spirit. Those who are willing to confess their sins and repent, turning away from their sins and turning to God. And Matthew 7, 7 to 8, it says, Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who continues to ask receives. Everyone who continues to seek will find. And everyone who continues to knock, the door will be opened. So basically, God will only give something to you if you really want it. It's got to be with your whole heart. You know how you want something and it's just a fad? Well, God's not going to give you what you want if you're not really wanting it. You've got to show that you're genuine in your seeking. So, the whole heart, what does it mean by coming to him with our whole heart? Well, the opposite of a whole heart is a divided heart, one that's partly in the world and partly on the Lord. So, for starters, Psalm 9 verse 1, it says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of your marvelous work. So, when we praise God, he wants all our heart. He 
wants us to praise him with a whole being, not with a divided heart, not with one part of us thinking about worldly things or being satisfied by worldly things. So what kind of praise pleases the Lord? What kind of praise blesses the Lord? Well, only when our praise is genuine from our whole heart and our affections are not divided. And now Psalm 119. This is an awesome psalm. It instructs us on how to study the Word of God, the attitude we should have in studying the Word of God, and the blessings that follow when we seek God through His Word. And this is something that's really special, I've noticed, and how our obedience is directly linked to how sincerely we seek God through His Word. So I've pulled out six verses from Psalm 119 that talk about and teach us about seeking the Lord with our whole heart. As you go through, notice how seeking the Lord with the whole heart is directly linked to greater obedience. So Psalm 119 verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Psalm 119 verse 10. With my whole heart I have sought you, O let me not wander from your commandments. Psalm 119 verse 34. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Psalm 119, verse 58. I entreated your favour with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. Psalm 119, verse 69. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Psalm 119, verse 145. I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. So there's a lesson we can learn from this what is the psalmist teaching us here well there's a quote we are as close to god at any given moment as we choose to be god says draw near to me and i will draw near to you james 4 8 so the only thing limiting our closeness to god our ability to obey him and our understanding of the greatness of his glory majesty power mercy loving kindness and holiness is our desire or willingness to submit to god resist the devil and he will flee from you james 4 7 so basically, the more we love the world, the less we will love God, and the less God is able to reveal himself to us, and therefore, the less we will be able to obey him. So it all goes back to seeking the Lord through the word with a whole heart, where we have made that decision to turn away from the things of the world and seek our satisfaction the fulfillment of our desires from God. So, how willing we are to give up the things of the world, like ungodly relationships, TV, music, videos, books, internet games, social media, any other kind of sin, is a measure of how genuine or how wholehearted we are in our desire to join near to God. As we replace these worldly things with the things of God, like prayer, scripture, fellowship, evangelism, helping others, good works, we will experience more of his presence and therefore his glory. But remember, God doesn't force us to do this, right? It's always our choice. So I've summarized it this way. Every choice I make is either to love this world and the things of this world or love God and enjoy intimacy with him. Every choice I make is either to love this world and the things of this world or love God and enjoy intimacy with him. And I want to go through a bit of my personal testimony. So imagine that you were gifted with 7,500 hours of free time. And this is not time to sleep. This is not time to eat. This is not time to work. This is free time when you are actually free to do something that you want to do. So what would you do with 7,500 hours? Well, I went through and I calculated I think it's conservative, actually. But I think I've watched at least 7,500 hours of TV. Five hours a week times 50 weeks a year is 250 hours. 250 hours over 30 years, going from when I was 15 to when I was 45, when I stopped watching TV. Around then somewhere is 7,500 hours. Now, 7,500 hours I spent programming my mind with the things of this world, lust, 
violence, immorality, greed, decadence or pleasure-seeking, selfishness and bad attitudes and values. And I wondered why during those years I had trouble with my desire for spending time with God and digging into his word. I also wondered why I was so prone to sin and being selfish. For all those years I was typically spending five hours a week feeding my flesh, strengthening the desires of my sinful nature and grieving the Holy Spirit who's living in me having to watch this thing with me. So, so much for me living a life worthy of calling to which I was called. So, yeah, I was still going to read my Bible. I was still going to church. <laughs> in fact, before those years, I was a pastor. You know, preparing sermons each week and telling others to draw near to God and to live a pure life while I spent five hours feeding my flesh. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, did I see it like that when I was doing it? Nah. Now, I excused myself. I justified myself. I had all these empty excuses, nothing but lies, but I believed them. I convinced myself that TV and movies weren't so bad and they were necessary for my mental health. I needed an escape from reality. I needed to relax. So let's encourage myself to sin as a form of relaxation. That's really smart, eh? <laughs> anyway. This is what we do. I was not serving the Lord with a whole heart. I couldn't have been if I was doing that. So we need to be willing to give these things up. Whatever it is in your life, you need to be willing to give it up. You need to count the cost. Philippians 3, 12-16, it says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me no dear brothers and sisters I have not achieved it but I focus on this one thing forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us that all who are spiritually mature agree on these things if you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. So, yeah, I've given up TV. But there's other things I need to give up. There's other things, attitudes I need to deal with, my selfishness and things like that. I'm still in this process of sanctification. Now, I look back with regret, but I don't look back at the same time. You know what I mean? It says, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Each day is a new day. Each day is a new opportunity to put God first. And we don't have to live in the past and go, oh, dumb me. You know, I wasted all this. I'm going to give up. No. Press on. Forgetting the past. Don't have regrets. Just keep going. Just, I'm not going back there. Forgetting the past. Looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race. And verse 16 is important. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. This tells us that we can actually slip back into those old things. We make progress, but we don't want to slip back. We want to keep going. Now, Ray Comfort says, Save yourself some pain regarding our sanctification, regarding our growth as a Christian. We can speed up our sanctification if we choose to. We can grow quicker. How? Spending our time in the Word of God. Spend your time with God. Yeah? The more time you spend in the Word, in the presence of God, then the more opportunity God has to change us. The more we change, the faster we change, then the less we suffer because of the consequences of our sin. So, remember what Satan wants to do? He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And so, as we sin, we give him opportunity to steal our joy to kill our relationships and to destroy the good that God is doing in our lives. So another thing that we need to be careful of is who we keep company with. Ungodly company will corrupt us. So think about who you're spending company with and why you're spending it with them because they will corrupt you, just like those TV programs. So 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. 
awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, what God tells the prophets, Jeremiah, he'll tell Ezekiel as well, and especially Jeremiah, it's very explicit, is that let them come to you, but you're not allowed to go to them. Basically, you've got to keep yourself separate. You've got to be pure. So this whole thing about being called into ministry is being pure from fleshly input, the world, the world's inputs, and getting rid of those things, as well as separating ourselves from those who will corrupt us with their company as well. So God is not going to force us to do this. He's not going to say, you must not watch TV. He's not going to you know, force you to give those things up because it has to be something you do willingly. But it is his desire for us to do those things, to be pure, to seek him. And we will benefit greatly from it. Why? We'll become a vessel of honor, prepared and ready for the master's use. And this is what God is doing with Ezekiel. He's calling him away from the world and into a deeper relationship with himself. And remember, the battle is always for our hearts, our affections. What will we choose to love more? Am I going to choose to love God or the things of the world? So again, why go through this? What does this have to do with Ezekiel? Well, it's everything. This is the call to ministry. Ezekiel was a man just like us, who was willing to serve God with his whole heart because he loved God with his whole heart, because he made the decision to seek the Lord with his whole heart. And that's why he was able to be used by God in such a mighty way. So he's just a man, just like you and I, just a human, with all our same weaknesses. but. He chose to seek God with his whole heart. And if you don't get anything else from today, it's seeking God with your whole heart. Not a divided heart, not one foot in the world and one foot with God. So remember the quote from Dwight L. Moody? He said, The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. So we can see, or we will see, what God is going to do through Ezekiel, who was very consecrated, very set apart to God. But God wants the same for us. He wants to use us in the same way he uses Ezekiel. In fact, even more. Again, we need to set our affections on the Lord on a day-by-day basis, forsaking the temporary pleasures of the world. Remember what Jesus said? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So these prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, They went through this process of sanctification. They went through this process of studying the Word of God. They went through this process of dying to self. And then they could be used by God. So the questions we can ask ourselves as a bit of self-reflection. How available do I want to be so God can use me? Will I continue to seek satisfaction and gratification from the world or from the Lord? Will I continue to serve myself or serve the Lord? Now what's the reward if we give the things of the world up? Well, the Bible has this promise. Psalm 16 verse 11 You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the choice I have to make by faith is Will I believe that the pleasures or the pleasure God offers is greater than what the world offers? Will I really believe that? Because if I do believe that by faith, if I say I'm going to trust this promise, then I'll give up the things of the world, believing, knowing that I'm going to see something better from God. And we have this cloud of witnesses who have already gone before us, and what have they said? It's better to give up the things of the world. So let's move on. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28, the second part, and through to chapter 2 verse 2. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. So this is interesting, this title, the Son of Man. It's actually used in two ways in the scripture. And you need to understand the two different ways it's being used. So when it's used from Ezekiel, or 
God addresses Ezekiel, it's actually emphasizing his weakness. It's emphasizing his weakness. And David Guzik says, This is the first of 93 times God uses phrase to address Ezekiel. It is a title that emphasizes that he is a man among men and something of a representative of humanity. So this is why it's so important for us to learn about Ezekiel because we are just like him and we can be used like him if we choose to serve God with our whole heart. Another quote from a guy called Taylor, the phrase son of man is a Hebraism which emphasizes Ezekiel's insignificance or mere humanity. Son of indicates partaking of the nature of and so when combined with Adam or man, it means nothing more than human being. So every time God calls Ezekiel son of man, he's saying, hey, you're only a man. He's reminding him of Ezekiel's weakness. Which is important because Ezekiel needs to be reminded of that, as we all do, so we trust in God instead, right? But when we go to the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the son of man. This is different. And it's got to do with the culture as well. But another quote from David Guzik, Son of man was also a phrase Jesus used to refer to himself, recorded some 80 times in the Gospels. Yet Jesus' use of the phrase is more connected with the idea from Daniel 7.13, where Son of man describes the divine Messiah. So if you go to Daniel 7.13, it talks about the Son of man as being Jesus, the Messiah. So, When God addresses Ezekiel, son of man, it has a different meaning to the New Testament when Jesus calls himself the son of man. Because Jesus is doing his in a prophetic way. I am the son of man Daniel was referring to in Daniel chapter 7, 13. Now, in verse 1 it says in chapter 2, stand on your feet. So, a quote from a guy called Smith. Service, not servility is what God desired from this man. In those days, servants always stood in the presence of their master. So that's a cultural thing. So if you're going to serve your master, you stand on your feet. So God is also calling us to stand on our feet. Okay. So once we bow down in submission to God, the next step is to stand up so we can serve him. God can't ask us to stand up until we're the first in submission and first bowed down. And there's an application here, a really awesome application. God's commands are God's promises of provision and enablement. So I'll read that again. God's commands are God's promises of provision and enablement. Look what happened here. God first commanded Ezekiel to stand up, so there's a command. And then the Spirit entered into Ezekiel, came upon him, and literally stood him up. And that's how it always works. God first commands, and only then will God provide everything required to make it happen. Interesting, eh? It's not like God gives us something to do that we can already do. No, God tells us to do something that we can't do, and then he gives us the strength to do it. Do you realize that most of the commands in the Scriptures are humanly impossible to perform the way God intends them to be? kept for example loving our enemies forgiving from the heart those who hurt us dying to self enduring persecution we can't do it ourselves all we need to obey the lord is to trust the promises in his word and submit to and rely on the holy spirit and mcgee says if god has called you to do a certain thing he'll give you the power to do it The best position you can come to is to recognize that you are not able in your own strength to do the job the Lord has given to you. So, how does God refer to us? Son of man, you're just a mere human. You're weak. But then what does he do? He fills you with his spirit and he enables you to do what he's asked you to do. Now, I mentioned about this application. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And basically, the answer is, it's how God uses trials to shape and mold us. So a bit of perspective here, this thing about you know people have this argument 
and this question about God. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, there is a perspective that we need to have here. The reality is that none of us are good in the sense that God is good or perfect. And therefore, none of us deserve to receive anything good from God. The wages of sin is death, right? This means that if God gave any of us what we actually deserve, we would all go straight to hell. He could just say, that's it. Game's over. You've had your chance. You've all messed up. See you later. The fact is, though, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. James 1.17 Who blesses both the good and evil. And in Matthew 5.45, that's what it says. God blesses both the good and the evil. And you say, why would God bless the evil? Well, that's God's nature. He loves all people. So when God says to us to bless our enemies, to love our enemies, he actually says in Matthew 5.45, you'll be sons of your father. Remember what we read before? To be a son of is to be in the likeness of, to be like that thing. We're in the likeness of God when we love our enemies because that's what God does. He loved his enemies. And we were all his enemies at one stage, remember? So that's the big picture. But practically speaking, we look around and we see people who are trying to do the right thing but suffer abuses and setbacks and they can't control that. It's not their fault. But other people are doing the wrong thing and they're openly corrupt and they're getting away with it. And so this was Ezekiel's predicament. So we're going to look at Ezekiel's life now, right? The corrupt priests in Jerusalem, in the temple, were allowed to stay there by Nebuchadnezzar. They were allowed to keep serving in the temple in Jerusalem. But Ezekiel, who was a priest in training, who was a good guy, <laughs> he was taken captive. Now, if you were Ezekiel, would you have understood that? Would you thought that was fair? Why do the corrupt priests get to stay? And why do I have to go? You know? It would have seemed completely unfair, completely wrong. And can you imagine Ezekiel thinking of praying, please God, don't let the Babylonians take me away as a prisoner. I've done all I can to serve you and be faithful to you. Please don't let this ruthless dictator take me to a strange land where I will be a slave, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from my homeland and the temple I love so dearly and look forward to serving you in. So this is how I imagine Ezekiel's perspective to be after he was taken captive. You put your feet in their shoes and what would it feel like to be in that position? But sometime after the second wave of deportations, when Ezekiel was taken from Judah to Babylon, God gave Jeremiah a revelation or prophecy that turned everything on its head. So listen to what God spoke through Jeremiah to all the Israelites after some of them were taken to Babylon. So it's the parable of the good and bad figs, and it's found in Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 to 10. It says this, After King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon exiled Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to Babylon, along with the officials of Judah and all the craftsmen and artisans, and if you read other parts of the Bible, there's 10,000 of them, including Ezekiel, the Lord gave me, or Jeremiah, this vision. So sometime after this second wave of deportations have happened, God gave Jeremiah this vision. I saw two baskets of figs placed in front of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. One basket was filled with fresh, ripe figs, while the other was filled with bad things that were too rotten to eat. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, Figs, some very good and some very bad, too rotten to eat. Then the Lord gave me this message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The good figs represent the exiles I sent from Judah to the land of the Babylonians. That's strange, isn't it? The good figs represent the exiles I sent from Judah to the land of Babylonians. I will watch over and care for them, and I will bring them back here again. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me, what? Wholeheartedly. God is seeking to bring them to wholehearted repentance. And they're not there yet. That's part of Ezekiel's job. It's going to take years of work. But the bad figs, the Lord said, 
represent King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, and all the people in Jerusalem. So the bad ones are the ones who are left behind. This is opposite to common sense, right? You think the people who are left behind are the lucky ones, but no, it's not. And all those who live in Egypt, I will treat them like bad figs, too rotten to eat. I will make them an object of horror and a symbol of evil to every nation on earth. They will be disgraced and mocked, taunted and cursed wherever I scatter them. And I will send war, famine and disease until they have vanished from the land of Israel, which I gave to them and their ancestors. So put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. What would your response be to Jeremiah's message about the good and bad figs? Would it change your perspective? Would it give you hope? Well, if you believe God's word, it would give you hope. And this is a really good example where the circumstances don't change, but our understanding or perspective of those circumstances does change by hearing and understanding the word of God. Now, as we go through these things we can learn, think about your own personal circumstances. Think about the hard times that you are in right now and apply this to yourself. So what can Ezekiel understand about his circumstances? Well, God removed him from Judah to spare him from the terrible judgment that was coming upon those living in Jerusalem. Secondly, God was watching over them and caring for them, even in a foreign land. So this is a promise that God's heart is for them, despite their circumstances. The circumstances and their feelings do not reflect the reality that God is for them. This is for their good. The next point is that God would one day take them back to Judah. But remember, this was not in Ezekiel's lifetime. All right. So God says, I'm going to take you back. But Ezekiel was never going to experience his promise. But what it is, it points to God having a big picture plan. God's promises are often big picture or eternal. They are bigger and go beyond our temporary circumstances. So for example, God promises that when a believer dies, they will go to heaven. Yeah, our spirit and our soul go straight to heaven. Or our bodies too, if the rapture happens. So we have these promises we can trust in, long-term promises. The next thing that we learn from this letter is that God, or this revelation from God, is that God would use their present circumstances to build them up and not tear them down. So hard times, God uses hard times to build us up and not tear us down. And by grace, they will come to experience a deeper relationship with God as they repent and seek Him with their whole heart. So that's what trials do. God puts us in difficult circumstances so we can come to repentance and seek him with our whole heart. It will remove all those other distractions. It will show us what's real and what's really important. So, circumstances, just be careful that you don't look at your circumstances and say, you know, well, God doesn't love me or God doesn't care or God isn't watching because I'm going through a hard time. No, the hard time is a gift. The hard time is there to help you grow and these promises are there to help you trust him more and to remove all those distractions, to get rid of all those distractions so we can focus more on him and to show us that in those hard times that the only thing we can do is trust him. So what is the evidence of God's love for us? If it's not, you know, having everything going well for us, you know, because evil people have everything going well for them. A lot of them do. Well, the only solid true evidence of God's love for us is demonstrated by Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. He died in our place, the innocent for the guilty, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know that God loves us. So circumstances, whatever happens, happens. Trust God that it's the best thing for you, but if you want to know if he loves you, go back to the cross. Now, we walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're looking for the eternal reward. Now, there's more that happens back in the days of Ezekiel. Jeremiah writes a letter to the captives, and it contains another message from God. It's similar to the one we just read, but it expands on it. 
was also sent at a similar time. So this is Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 23, and it's a letter to the exiles or captives living in Babylon. So it says, Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiachin, the Queen Mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the other craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. Going down to verse 4, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon and from Jerusalem. So notice who it's addressed to, all the captives. Build homes and plan to stay. Interesting. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for its welfare, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Wow. That would have been a, a hard thing to swallow if you're living in captivity, wanting to go home. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you to exile. What? These are our enemies. Why would I want to help them? We'll come back to that. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and your fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you into thinking that you will go back home within two years. That's what they said in Jeremiah 28, 1-9. They're making this prophecy. Within two years from this second deportation event, everything's going to be all right. All the people will be back and all the articles from the temple will be returned as well. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. So if you're Ezekiel, you're going, oh, great. <laughs> but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days you will pray, and I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Again, this wholehearted theme going through this whole thing. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. So that's a national promise that God will bring them back, and he did. Verse 15, you claim that the Lord has raised up prophets for you in Babylon. These are false prophets. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all those still living here in Jerusalem, your relatives who are not exiled to Babylon. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says, I will send war, famine and disease upon them and make them like bad figs, too rotten to eat. Yes, I will pursue them with war, famine and disease and I will scatter them around the world. In every nation where I send them, I will make them an object of damnation, horror, contempt and mockery. For they refuse to listen to me. So who's been left behind? It's the people who refuse to listen. Though I have spoken to them repeatedly through the prophets, I sent, and you who are in exile have not listened either, says the Lord. So the people who are in exile still want to go back. They're still not listening. But God has a promise that in time they will repent with their whole heart and come back. And some did. If you go forward 70 years, not in your notes or anything, but if you go forward 70 years, about 50,000 of them did come back and they did have hearts that were seeking the Lord. Therefore, verse 20, listen to this message from the Lord, all you captives there in Babylon. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says about your prophets. Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are telling you lies in my name. I will turn them over to Nebuchadnezzar for execution before your eyes. Their terrible fate will become proverbial, so that the Judean exiles will curse someone by saying, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned alive. Oh. For these men have done terrible things among my people. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives and have lied in my name, saying things I did not command. I am a witness to this. I, the Lord, have spoken. So God is watching. He's a witness to these lies and he's going to deal with these false prophets. So, what's happening? There's false prophets, both in exile and in Jerusalem, in Judea. 
And they're saying within two years, this is a popular prophecy going on, within two years, all the captives are going to come home. All the articles that were taken from the temple of Nebuchadnezzar are going to be returned. And giving the people a false hope. What does God say? You're going to be there 70 years. Set your roots down here. I'm going to do work in you here. I'm going to do work in you here. But the people who are left back there, they're going to suffer. They're the ones who I know are not going to repent and they're going to die by the sword, by famine, by disease, and they're scattered. So what can we learn about how to deal with it? Difficult circumstances as well as some unexpected difficulties we often face. Well, God tells the captives in Jeremiah chapter 29 to build homes and plan to stay. So how can we apply this? Well, don't try to run away or escape from the trial. Settle down and settle in for the long haul. Be productive in your current predicament, as difficult as it may be. Submit to the trial. And it's in verse 7, it's in a difficult one. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Remember, the Babylonians are the enemies. They don't want to be there. But it says to work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. So don't fight against the trial, but rather work with it as best you can. So, you know, you could be in a difficult family situation. You could be in a difficult work situation or whatever it might be. Work hard to be a blessing to those who God has allowed to hold you captive and as much as it depends on you, get along with them. And I look at it this way. God puts us in dark places so we can be lights in a dark world. How are they going to hear the gospel if he doesn't put Christians in there? And verse 7, it also says, Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Imagine if Ezekiel and the other captives tried to fight against them there, they would have been suffering and that would have made them treat the Israelites worse. So we pray for them instead. It's so important that we pray for God's help for our situation. And I said it could be family issues, work problems, broken relationships, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial hardship. We need to think beyond ourselves. God is generous, he's gracious, and he wants to use us to be a blessing to those around us. Even if they are wicked and cruel Babylonians. And we have some of those, don't we? People around us, people are hard to get along with. God is saying that when they are blessed, we are blessed. Now, that doesn't mean you agree with them in their idolatry and their wickedness, but you seek, when possible, to be a blessing to them. You pray for them, especially. And verse 8 and 9, Do not let your false prophets trick you. Now, the application here is pretty simple. People are going to try to get you to give up, to seek the easy way out, to quit trying. They're going to be trying to help you escape the trial instead of supporting and encouraging you in the trial encouraging you in your walk with God as you go through the trial. So my advice is, if people are saying, oh, you poor thing, oh, you know, it's so terrible, you know, he's treating you so bad, you know, you should just leave him. Get those sympathizers out of your house and say, please don't come back. They're just causing you to feel sorry for yourself and encouraging you to throw a pity party and, you know, just basically have a cry over your hard times. It's dangerous. People will do that. Now what happens? Let's say that happens. You know, marital problems, right? And people say, oh, you poor thing, you know, he's so nasty to you. Just just, just leave. Well, of course, there are some times when a separation is the right thing to do. Sometimes you've got to press on. Sometimes God is trying to teach you something. And if you don't stay in that situation, you won't get the benefit of the growth that would have come if you'd stuck with God's plan for your life, you see. And then what happens? If you don't learn the lesson from that trial, and you run away, God will have to invent another trial for you, and you have to go through the whole thing again. Better to learn the lesson the first time, right? So remember, God's promise is to be with us in the trial and to carry us through the trial 
and not always to deliver us from the trial. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. So again, God doesn't promise to deliver us from all trials. He promises to be with us in the trial. And the big picture promise is that when it's all over, you're going to be with me and it's all going to be good. Now, verse 11. This is one of the most misunderstood verses, I think, in the Bible. It's quoted heaps and heaps. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So what were God's good plans? that the children of Israel, the captives, would live in a foreign land with their own land in ruins. So, I challenge you, get in a time machine, go back to the land of Babylon, and ask some of those Israelites living as captives in the land of Babylon if they agreed with God's plan, if they thought it was a good one. Excuse me, Mr. Israelite, do you think it's a good plan that God wants you to stay away from your land, your temple be destroyed, your city be destroyed, and you live here and your family and your grandchildren for 70 years? in a land that's crazy with idols. I say, no, I don't think it's a good plan. This is not comfortable. This is not easy. And remember that Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. How can we sing a song in a strange land? You know, they were not happy there. It was a very sad place. There was a lot of pain involved in being in Babylon. The memories of the temple being destroyed and the city being destroyed and wanting to go home, it wasn't an easy place to be. And it would have taken a lot of faith to submit to God and accept that it was the best thing for them. However, we can see that it was the best plan. So we have hindsight now, we're looking back. God took the children of Israel to Babylon. But it says in Jeremiah fifty thirty eight, it says, they are crazy or they are insane with their idols. Babylon was the land of idol worship. And so God taking the children of Israel to Babylon was actually one of the purposes was to cure them of their obsession with worshipping idols. What were they doing in Egypt when they were slaves before Moses' day? You know, they were worshipping idols. What did they do when they came out of Egypt? They brought their idols with them. What do they do in the wilderness? They worshipped idols. They made a calf. What do they do when they went to the promised land? As soon as Joshua died, back to worshipping idols. And throughout the whole history, they had this obsession with worshipping idols. So basically God said, if you want idols, it's idols you get. I'm sending you to the land of idols, to the land where they're insane with their idols, to cure you of your obsession with idols. After all these idols, you'll never want to see another one. <laughs> So I think of it like this, you know, if you go to work for a fast food joint, Red Rooster, whatever, and you're handling their food and smelling their food all day, every day, the first day might be nice, oh, I like Red Rooster. And then the after a week, it's like, I'm going to eat this, this. And after a month, it's like, I never want to see another Red Rooster <laughs> packet of food again, you know. You know, you probably never had to eat roast chicken again because you all day, every day, it's a smell, you know. That's kind of what God was doing. He's saying, this is where it ends up. This is what it means to be insane with idols. This is what I'm trying to stop you from becoming. And they go, ah, I think I get it now. So God puts us in trials to teach us a lesson. We can look back on Ezekiel's day and we can see that God put them there. They didn't like it. It was tough for them. But what did God say? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. It was true. It did give them a future and a hope. 
but it was a hard time getting there. So, conclusion, quick summary. One, we must remember that God's plans are always what is best for us, even if they are not easy or comfortable, and they cause us pain. God is doing a work in us that will benefit us personally, and he's also doing a work through us, which is for the benefit of those around us. We just need to trust God that he knows best and learn to submit to his will. This means we don't try to escape the trial, but instead ask God for the strength to go through the trial or difficulty. Secondly, God's calling us to serve him will involve great sacrifice. The more of the old life we are willing to sacrifice, then the more available we will be for God to use us. So we see these prophets being used amazingly by God. They were willing to give up the old life. Three, if we are to obey God consistently, we must first seek him through his word with our whole heart. And we read all those verses from Psalm 119. If we want to live a fulfilled life, a life where we're single-heartedly following the Lord, we need to seek God with our whole heart and not be double-minded, have one foot in the world and one foot with God, in a relationship with God. Fourthly, where God commands, he also enables or provides. So God's commands are also his promises. By his Holy Spirit coming upon us, he will empower us to do, say, and think whatever he commands. And lastly, and this is where we started, to have an accurate view of ourselves, we must first have an accurate view of God. God reveals himself to us if we seek him through prayerful meditation on and study of the scriptures. And coming to awareness of God's greatness results in genuine humility. And only then can God lift us up, tell us to stand up and get to work. So Father, help us today. Lord, we've learned a bit about Ezekiel's situation, what he was going through, what it was like for the people in those days. And Lord, there's a lot of parallels to our own world, to our own calling, to our own situation, our own trials, our own difficulties. Help us to trust you. Lord, we can look back and we can see that it is very true that your bringing those people out of Jerusalem and into the land of Babylon was actually the best thing for them. Lord, I pray that you will help us to also see that the difficult times we're going through are the best thing for us. And if we can't see it, and if it's impossible to see, then help us to trust you anyway. Because sometimes it's not obvious why. And so we just pray that you'll give us that faith. Help us to surrender to your will, to know that you know best, and to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, as we um, study the scriptures, Second Timothy 3.16, it equips us for being able to serve the Lord. As we're seeking with our whole heart, he changes us and we become available to be used by God. Remember, the whole heart is not having a foot in the world and a foot with God. James calls that being the double-minded man. We want to be single-minded. We want to be wholehearted. We want to be willing to get rid of all those things and be wholeheartedly following the Lord. And then God can use us in a mighty way. Remember, he's calling each and every one of us. Will you respond to that call? God bless you guys.